to everyone. It's good to see you all this morning, albeit through the medium of television, sorry, or, or uh, this, these screens, computer screens here. Um, so uh, just to have a ring of familiarity, let me ask you this question that I usually ask. Can you all hear me? All right. So one of the things that uh, I saw this morning that was running as a theme uh, under the direction of the Spirit through the worship was about the love of God. We sang about the love of God and the brothers exhorted us about the love of God. And some of the brothers even gave thanks to the Lord about the love of God. And it's not a coincidence that the Lord inspired me or put it on my heart in the last week to speak about this very topic that is the love of God. And as usual, let me begin with an illustration here. Uh, a Chinese boy wanted to learn about jade, uh, the precious uh, stone jade. So he went to study with a talented old teacher. And this gentleman put a piece of the precious stone into his hand and told him to hold tight to it for a couple of hours every single day. And for those couple of hours, as he held on to that precious stone, he, he talked about philosophy, the universe, the sun, and almost everything under it. And when it, was, when it was time for him to go back home, he took the stone back and sent the boy home. So this process was repeated for several weeks and the boy became frustrated. When would he be told about jade and anything about jade? Since he was too polite, however, to question the wisdom of the venerable teacher, he did not say anything to the teacher. Then one day when the old man all of a sudden put a stone into his hands, the boy instantaneously cried out, this is not jade. He had become so familiar with the touch of jade, with the genuine precious stone, that he could immediately detect a counterfeit or a phony one. You know, hardly a day goes by when I don't delete spam emails trying to get me to buy uh, a fake Rolex watch or a fake college degree even. Other emails promise me that I'll receive about a million dollars from some stranger, especially in Africa. The world is full of spurious things, and most of these are easy to spot. But far more serious than losing some money to a con artist would be to lose your soul because you've believed in a wrong thing or you've bought into a lie. That's why repeatedly there are warnings in the New Testament that we must be very careful to make sure that our faith is true. We need to know that our personal faith in Christ is genuine, not a false one. Since our eternal destiny is at stake, we need to know that what we have is real and not a phony substitute. So this raises some important questions for us this morning. Is my faith genuine? Or is there a way I can reassure myself this morning that I'm in the truth? Or... Does loving others have anything to do with my faith? Now, we need to be glad that the New Testament has answers to all these questions that we raised. The Apostle John, towards the end of his life, when he was an old man, he penned the first epistle of John from Ephesus. He wrote it against the backdrop of influential false teachers to help his readers, that is his audience, to know that their faith was genuine and that they possessed eternal life in Christ Jesus. And his great emphasis is on the difference between genuine Christian and the spurious one, and how to discern between the two. 
the predominant theme of this epistle is Christian certainty. And the Greek word gnosko, which means to know by observation or to know by experience, occurs 15 times in this epistle, which means John wants us to know some things with certainty. John wants us to know certain things for sure, that these are real. So throughout the epistle, John gives three tests of faith. The first one is the doctrinal test that he talks about. And the question that he raises there is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is a son of God who's come in the flesh? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is a son of God who's come in the flesh? Then there's a second thing as a test that he raises, and that is the ethical test. And there he asks the question, does your life exhibit a growing obedience to Christ? Now, the third question that he raises is the relational question or the social question, the social test. Does your life show a growing practical love for others? Does my life show a growing practical love for others? He wants his little children, as he calls them, to know that they have eternal life. And as we read this in the 21st century today, he wants us to know that we have eternal life. So this morning's passage will help us to reassure ourselves that we have eternal life by looking at the last test that we talked about, the relational test, the test of love. And John discussed three things about that love in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And uh, uh, as, as always, I have the outline here and uh, we'll go step by step. Please follow along in the outline and also in your Bibles. And I'll pause for about five seconds for you to turn to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. I hope most of you have got there. And if you haven't already, uh, I hope you will get there very soon. So the first thing, in verses 7 and 8, you will see that love for others is proof that you have a relationship with God. Love for others is proof that you have a relationship with God. Uh, can you help me with the PPT here, please? Yes. When we love others, it is a clear indication that God has touched our lives and that we are growing in him. In helping us understand this, John says three things about it. Let's look at it step by step. First, love has its source in God. Look at the first part of verse 7 or 7a as we call it. Beloved let us love one another, for love is from God. John begins his discussion of Christian love with the direct address, beloved. There's a pastoral warmth in that particular word that John is using. It is an expression of his own love for his people that he is writing to. And John is somebody who practices what he preaches. So before he urges his readers to love one another, he wants to first assure his readers that he loves them too. That's why he says, beloved, he loves them. And now he's going to challenge them to love one another. And therefore, he says in the second part of that verse, uh, verse 7a, let us love one another. Now, here is a call for mutual love in which John is including himself. It's in the present tense. So the present tense is calling for love as a characteristic practice. It needs to be a practice in our lives. 
And the phrase one another means that love must be mutual. This love must flow in both directions. It is a call to unselfishly desire the true welfare of other believers. It is that kind of a love that should characterize your relationship with me and my relationship with other believers. Now we must raise the question here, why should we love one another? Because John answers that question right in the next phrase. The reason that John gives here is, now notice the phrase, for love is from God. Love has its origin in God and it belongs to the divine sphere. Now you wouldn't be able to tell this from the English translation, but if you have to literally translate the original of what John was writing here, it goes like this. For the love is of God. For the love is of God. Which means he is not talking about any love. He is not talking about any kind of a sentimental or romantic or feelings oriented love. Rather, he is talking about the love. There's a definite article there. The love that has its source in the person of God. And this love flows from or literally this love flows out of God in such a way that the connection with the source remains unbroken. Now, this is love in its highest form, a sacrificial love that is willing to give its all for the good of the one that is being loved. And this kind of a love, says John, has its ultimate source only in God. That's why John says, for the love is from God. The point here is this, and listen to me very carefully, please. No one can possibly love unless that love has been communicated to him by God. And if you and I love others with a God kind of a love, it gives evidence that we are connected to God. Being born again unites spiritually dead, selfish hearts to God's living and loving heart so that his life becomes our life and his love becomes our love. Love's source is in God. And as we love like God loves us. We give evidence we are connected to God. So love has its source in God. Second thing that John is talking about here. Love is evidence that God has changed your life. Love is evidence that God has changed your life and my life. Look at verse 7b or the second part of verse 7. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and he knows God. The new birth, the imparting to you of divine life, is something where love becomes an indispensable part. When God imparts to you the divine life or gives you that new birth, part of that package is imparting to you and imparting to me that love of God. Every individual actively practicing the kind of love which John is speaking about here has been born of God and knows God. Now notice the phrase here, he has been born of God. It means that the definite experience of the new birth has been caused by God. It is a work of God. It is not the work of the individual. It is not something that the individual mustered up by himself. It is the work of God. So what is the result of this work of God? We become members of God's family and our ability to love flows from the implanted eternal life. Therefore, 
Love is an evidence that life is present in us. Love is an evidence that eternal life has been gifted to me by God. Now look at the second assertion that John is making here. He says, and he knows God. He knows God. This talks about the sure result of new birth. The verb knows is in the present tense once again, which means that the individual is continuing to grow in the knowledge and getting to understand God better. Since love can come through a relationship with God and only come through a relationship with the God of love, everyone who truly loves shows themselves to have been born again by God. They demonstrate that they have been brought into this new life by him. They know him is what John is saying. They have a relationship with him. They are God's own children. And like good children, they want to behave like their father and honor their father. Now, some of us may need further clarity on this. So let me take some time to explain this a little more. John is not saying that anyone who shows love is a child of God, regardless of whether he actually believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not what he's saying here. When you look at his statement in the entire context of this epistle, it becomes very clear about what John is talking about here. Actually, in chapter 3 and verse 23, if you turn over the page here to chapter 3 and verse 23, he has already made it enough that the true child of God both believes and loves. So there are two things to it. He both believes and he loves. Look at 323. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. There's another aspect to it that I want to bring about here so that there is no misunderstanding. Now, to be sure, unbelievers do demonstrate sacrificial love for others. Unbelieving parents often sacrificially love their children. Unbelieving soldiers may lay down their lives for their comrades. Now, these loving deeds stem from God's common grace because we have made, we've been made in the image of God. But John is saying, if an individual ever loves as the word of God sets forth what love is, he's been born of God. You've been born of God if you love that way. I have been born of God and know God if I love that way. So it's the new birth that enables you to love God and you to love others, me to love God and me to love others. It's the kind of love that God gives to his children and only they can show that kind of a love. And if you and I have that kind of a love, which comes from God, then John is saying that it is a clear evidence that you and I have been born of God and we know God. We walk with God on a daily basis. Thirdly, lack of love shows you are not connected to God. Lack of love shows you are not connected to God. Look at uh, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In a typical Johannine fashion, this verse presents the opposite picture, and John does that quite often in all of the five books that he wrote. It's a picture of an individual who's unloving in attitude and practice. The absence of love in his life proves that he does not know God. And he's never come to know God personally and what God is like personally. Not knowing love shows that he is still a stranger to God. Now, hear me, please. A person cannot come into a real, 
loving relationship with a loving God without being transformed in the process into a loving person. Why is that? John gives the reason here. Because God is love. God is love. This statement is another one of the great biblical statements about the nature of God. It, it stands parallel to two other statements that John made in, in all of his writings. If you go back to John's gospel, chapter 4, uh, in the conversation of Jesus with uh, the Samaritan woman, Jesus says this, God is spirit, and John writes that. God is spirit. And in the early part of this epistle, in chapter 1, John made another great statement about the nature of God. He said, God is light. And now in chapter 4, verse 8, in this epistle, John is saying, God is love. Three great biblical statements about the nature of God. God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. They, of course, set forth uh, different aspects of the essential nature of God. But that's not the, what we're going to study right now. But what John's point here is, since love is a personal activity, the statement assumes that God is a person. And the fact that God is a person and is completely loving does not invalidate the fact that he is also holy and righteous. All aspects of his nature belong together and they unite in determining his action. His actions are totally self-consistent. Now, a Sunday school girl once said this. You know, all of my life, I've been doing things like everybody else. Uh, I've been kind to my friends, polite to strangers, and really nasty to people that I don't like. And then she said this. It suddenly dawned on me that Christians are not to be kind only to people that they love and they are loved by. They are not to be nice to people who are nice to them or just to their friends. But Christians are to be loving to everyone because they are people and we are Christians. A Sunday school girl said this. And that's what exactly what the Bible is saying. And John especially is speaking about here. And that's what love is. It takes no notice of what the person is like or what he does or how he dresses or how he looks or anything about his background. It only sees one thing. And that is here is another believer Another one just like me with all the longings and the heartaches and the searchings and the problems, the aspirations and frustrations, of course, of life just like me. And here's another person that I can help. I can love him just like God is asking me to love because God is love. And that is love is what John is saying. And John is also saying this lack of love shows that you are not connected to God. Lack of love shows you're not connected to God. So in verses 7 and 8, we just saw that love for others is proof that you have a relationship with God. Now, John so far has exhorted us to love one another. And the reason that he gave us because God is love. But how exactly did God show his love toward us? And this he discusses in our second point, which is in verses 9 and 10. They say, God demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for us. God demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for us. True love is seen in God sending his only son to be a sacrifice for us so that we may be saved. And John has two things to say about it. 
the first thing that John says is, can we have the PPT moving, please? Yeah. So the first thing that John says is this. God sent his son into the world to give us life. God sent his son into the world to give us life. Look at verse 9, please. In this is love, uh, or in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Hear me, please. Fallen humanity, you and I in our fallen nature would never have known this love apart from the fact that God took the initiative in revealing his love to mankind, to you and to me. And John is saying that God manifested his redemptive love in the incarnation of his son, in sending his son into the world. And God's love was revealed by means of the sending of his son. Now, John is using the phrase was manifested. It's a favorite term for John. You see that many times in his writings. What it means is to make visible, to make very clear, to bring something out in the open. And the implication is that before the first coming of Christ, the love of God, that is God's love for mankind, had not yet been displayed in such a personal, dynamic manner. In Jesus Christ, God's message of love reached its climax. And this love of God was put on public display among us, says John. And John says, we did not just hear about it. We saw it. We were eyewitnesses. And here is what we know, John says. God sent his only son into the world. And what is the purpose of it? So that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. Now, John says, God sent his only son, which is a word that John uses five times. Uh, and in the New Testament, it is used in reference to Jesus. It means it is a unique one. He is one of a kind. There is nobody like him. There was and is no son like him. He's somebody who shares the very nature of the father. He is the only begotten of the father. Now, the moment I say this and the moment we've read that, John 3.16 should be ringing in your ears already. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his unique son, his only begotten son. And he sent his son into this enemy territory, into this world of sinners on a search and rescue mission. He came looking for us, even when we were not looking for him. And why did he come? Once again, go back to the purpose so that we might live through him. The world of humanity was dead with no life and no hope. God sent a son. The world of humanity was in rebellion against its loving creator. Still, God sent a son. The world of humanity was not looking for God and even hated God. Still, God sent a son. So that we might live through him. Now, what does it mean to live through him? Now, John has already talked about it in the previous verse. It means to be born of God. It means to know God personally. It means to experience the love of God and share that love with others. It means enjoying the fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It also means to walk in the light and walk just as Jesus did and have fellowship with one another. What a life the Son provides. 
what a life the son provides. And God manifested his love for us by sending his son into this world so that you and I might have life in him. Second thing that John says about how God demonstrated his love. God sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Look at verse 10. In this is love. And some of you may have it by heart. Uh, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins or atoning sacrifice for our sins. John begins this verse by saying, in this is love. John is going to talk about a deeper aspect of the love that he's been describing so far. And that's why he says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God. Now notice the phrase, not that we have loved God. So we didn't love him first. Let's be sure about it. I didn't love him first. Fallen human beings are not naturally in love with God, whom the son came to reveal. And that's why John says in John's gospel, he came to that which was his own and his own did not receive him. And as human beings, even believers did not originate the love that John is writing about here. But John goes on to say, and this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Two facts about God's love here in this phrase. And John is emphasizing that here. First thing, he loved us. He took the initiative and he revealed his love to us. His love was original. His love was spontaneous. And the redemptive purpose of his love is made clear in the second aspect that John is talking about. Why did God send his son? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this statement in the entire New Testament is a summary of the redemptive mission of Christ. John is insisting that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 2, he said that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now hear me, please. Jesus, as he came into this world, he was not merely sent to be the propitiator of our sins, like the high priest under, under the Mosaic covenant, but he was sent to be himself the propitiation for our sins by shedding his own blood for the remission of our sins. So Christ's self-sacrifice for sins made full atonement for all of our sins and thus enabling God to forgive us at his own cost the sins that we committed against him. And if you and I would believe in him, he would restore to us the acceptance that we so long for and the fellowship with him as well. Now, John Stott has written a book called The Cross of Christ. Uh, I want to respectfully say that uh, I don't agree with the entire theology of John Stott. He's a, he's a great teacher. I understand that. But I want to respectfully say that I don't entirely agree with uh, all that he writes. But he wrote one book called The Cross of Christ. And at least in my humble estimate, outside of Holy Scripture, that is one of the finest works on the atonement. In that book, he says this, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself in holy love undertook to do the propitiation. 
and God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, he says, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in the person of his own son when he took our place and died for us. Brilliant description. What John is saying is this, that he sent his son and as the son died for us on the cross, he bore the wrath of God in his own body. The wrath that was supposed to come upon you and upon me. You had to bear that wrath. I had to bear that wrath because we deserved it. We were sinful. But Christ died in our stead on the cross. And he bore that entire wrath. He exhausted the wrath of God to its very last drop. So if you and I would trust him, you and I can be given the gift of eternal life. He propitiated, satisfied, exhausted the wrath of God in his body, the wrath that was supposed to come upon you and upon me. In that is the love of God seen. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In the days of Soviet Union, an old Russian woman was devoutly kissing uh, the scarred feet of a statue of Christ in her church. Perhaps it was a different kind of a church. Uh, so a Soviet military officer saw her kissing the feet of Christ and he approached her and addressed her using a common Russian term for grandmother. He said, Babushka, are you willing to kiss the feet of Stalin? She looked at him and she responded, yes, I'm willing to kiss the feet of Stalin if he would get crucified for me. My dear brothers and sisters this morning, let me ask you this question as I ask myself this question. And let's be honest in answering this question. Do you doubt the love of God in your life? Do you doubt God's love for you because your plans have been thwarted by this pandemic? Do you doubt God's love because you've lost a job? Do you doubt God's love because your marriage is on the rocks, perhaps? Hear me, please. You must never define God's love based on your circumstances. You must never define God's love. And I must never define God's love based on the situation that I'm in. You and I must always define God's love based on the cross. If you doubt the love of God this morning, if I doubt the love of God this morning, look to the cross, please. Remember the words of Isaac Watts, what we sing often in our church. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? John is saying, don't measure love by the warm affection of your heart towards God. The gratitude that you feel towards God even. Now naturally, for us as believers, God has blessed us. And if God has blessed us and helped us and strengthened us, which he does, we certainly have a warm affection towards God arising out of our hearts for him. And rightly so. But that's not the measure of love. We also need to remember that God is altogether lovable and altogether lovely. And so don't define love as that quality of warmth that you and I have for God, because he is lovable anyway. That's not love. 
But John is saying, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is a sign of love stamped forever in history. The greatest sign of love in history is a bloody cross. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote the song, what language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, ever outlive my love to thee. My dear brother and sister this morning, have you been to the cross and seen the love of God manifested for you there? I know many of us have, but if there's anybody listening to me this morning from God's word, and if you haven't been to the cross yet in your life, would you please do that this morning? As the Lord is speaking to you through this word, and you will never fully understand what I'm talking about here until you first appropriate in your life the love of God that he's shown for you on the cross and for me on the cross. And since God in Christ has loved us so much, would you respond to him this morning by repenting of your sins and trusting in him? He's ever ready to forgive us of our sins, give us the gift of eternal life and make us a new person. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So two things we've seen so far about love. Love for others is proof that you have a relationship with God. The second thing, God demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for us. Then the third thing that John is talking about about the love of God, and that is in verses 11 and 12. They say, love for others shows that God dwells in us. The invisible God will be revealed in us when we love one another. Again, John has two points on this, and let's look at them one by one. The first thing, God's love for us should make us love others. Look at verse 11. Beloved, says John, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For the second time in this passage, John is using the word beloved, again, to reassure them of his love for them. But he's not transitioning to a new subject this time using that word. Rather, he wants to build on what is already talked about in verses 7 through 10. He's using a common uh, argument here called greater to lesser argument. Let me paraphrase that here. If God so loved us that he sent his most treasured possession, his one and only son to die for us such a gory death, then you and I naturally ought to love one another. That's the paraphrase of what John is writing about here. Now, a woman in Congo uh, she was crippled with leprosy. She crawled, and this is a true story, she crawled nearly eight miles on her swollen knees to her church on a Sunday morning. Eight miles on her swollen knees, crippled with leprosy, to go to church on a Sunday morning. And when some of the missionaries remarked about her amazing fortitude, she said this to them, the pain and the weariness of the journey is nothing. Jesus loved me enough to die in my place. I love his church and long to be with my fellow believers. 
John is saying the same thing here. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We ought to love one another. Notice the word ought there. He means ought the way fish ought to swim in water and birds ought to fly in the air. Living creatures ought to breathe and apples ought to be sweet. And born again people, you and I ought to love one another because that's who we are. This is not a mere imitation, although there's the aspect of imitation as well that the New Testament talks about. But this is not mere imitation for the children of God, for you and for me. Imitation becomes realization. We are realizing who we are in Christ Jesus when we love one another. God's seed is in us. God's spirit is in us. God's life is in us. God's love is in us. And therefore, we ought to love one another. Lastly, John says this. God's love reaches its intended goal in us when we love. Look at verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. Now, this verse is striking and unexpected at the beginning. It literally reads this way. God, no one ever has seen. The emphasis there is on the word God. God, no one ever has seen. And the word that John is using here is the word from which we get the English word theater. Which means that nobody has seen God up close and personal in his unveiled essence, in his unveiled glory and majesty. To do so would certainly be to our death. Moses on Mount Sinai and Isaiah in the temple, they only saw theophanies as we call them, or visions or revelations of God. They could see and barely handle that even. Now, anything more than that, they would have been vaporized. John's argument here is this. It takes a beautiful turn after he explains that God cannot be seen in his full glory up close and personal. Now notice the turn that John's argument takes. No one can see God in his essence, but we can see God through the lives of those who demonstrate his love to others. Isn't that beautiful? Mutual Christian love is the evidence that the unseen God who once revealed himself in his son in history is now revealing himself in his people because they love one another. And John makes this point by stating that when we love one another, it is proof that God reveals himself in us, that God abides in us, continually dwells among us. The second thing that he says is, God's love is perfected or it's brought to complete maturity. God's love reaches its intended goal when we love one another. One day, a father wanted to teach his little boy about God's love. And so he took him up to the top of a hill. And he pointed in all directions. And he said, uh, my son, I wanted you to understand this, that God's love is as big as the entire horizon. And he circled his, uh, his hand around the entire horizon. And he said, God's love is all around us. It's so big and so wide. The little boy with a twinkle in his eye looked at his dad and he said, 
that if that is the case, then we must be right in the middle of it, isn't it? How true. We are right in the middle of it. And But John is saying this, God's love reaches its intended goal in us when we love one another. When we love one another. So what's the point of this morning's passage? The whole passage basically says, your love for others, my love for others, shows that God has transformed you and me by his love on the cross. I can love others like God loves me because he lives in me. And his love will reach its intended goal, which is that I will love others like he loves me. It's a wonderful circle of theological truth that cannot be broken. Now, let me finish with this illustration here. Uh, yes, it's 10, 1047. I'll just take a couple of more minutes, please. There were four friends. Uh, they were all, they were the thickest of friends. And uh, three of them went to visit Israel. One person stayed back home for some reason. So while they were there, these three friends, they climbed on to Golgotha, the top of Golgotha, and uh, they got onto the summit and there was a tree that they saw there. And they broke off a small branch of it. They took that stick uh, and uh, they returned to their country. And they went to the fourth friend who couldn't accompany them on the journey. And uh, they said this, we wanted to know this, that when we stood on Calvary, we remembered you. And that's why we brought this little branch from a tree there for you. He accepted that gift with gratitude and courtesy. But then he tenderly remarked to them. He said this, I appreciate that you thought about me when you stood on Calvary. But I'm still much more thankful for somebody else who hung there for me and thought about me as well. I'm sure you're grateful this morning for that, as I am as well. And in light of that, John's exhortation this morning to you and to me is that we must love one another. Beloved, let's love one another because love is from God. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for your patience. Uh, may the Lord's name be glorified and let's pray. Father God, this morning, we want to thank you for the theme of love that's been running throughout worship. Thank you for the direction of your spirit under whose control we are, under whose control our entire worship is. And we want to thank you that you reminded us this morning of what love is. But it's not just about love, O oh Lord. This love is also a test of our faith. If we don't have the God kind of a love in our lives, then we show that we don't belong to God. Help each one of us to introspect ourselves, O oh Lord, this morning, very sincerely in light of what we've heard. And if there's anybody through which who, who through our introspection would come to know and understand that we don't have the kind of love that the Bible is talking about, then help us to check ourselves, our own lives in light of your word. But for those of us who've been reassured this morning that we are in you, help us to take this command seriously, this exhortation seriously, that we ought to love one another because love is from God and we are connected to the source. We want to thank you once again for the reminder. We want to thank you that your son is exalted in the heavens. But thank you for the reminder that one day in history, in the past, he came down to be a propitiation for our sins. And in him, we have life. And in him, we have a relationship with you. We worship you once again this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.